Romans uh, chapter 7. We're going to be continuing in our series this morning in the book of Romans, and uh, we're actually going to be closing out Romans chapter 7 this morning. So we're going to start in verse 14, which is where we left off last week. And if you were here last week, you know we looked at verses 7 through 13, and we really kind of explored two main, um, two main themes, one of which was the purpose of the law, which is very important, and then the deception of sin, which is also important that we understand that. And then we, we looked at how those two themes are interwoven through those verses to demonstrate uh, not only how important it is for us to see our sin accurately, but also how we need to see and know our Savior intimately. And so we talked about how uh, sin's a master deceiver, and then that the purpose of the law is to dis- expose that sin for, for what it really is, instead of what we often rationalize it to be in our own minds. And these truths are very important as we move forward today, because as I've said probably every week when I stand up to, to preach is, Everything Paul is saying in, in this book specifically, in, in a lot of his writings, it, it builds. And so just imagine we've been building, I know my kids like Legos, so just imagine we've been building Legos for a while, and you can't really build the top of that building until you got the foundation, right? And so we got a little bit of a foundation laid now in those first six chapters. We're finishing chapter seven, but, and as we build the top of this, don't forget what we've done at the bottom. And so if you've missed out on, on part of the series, you feel free to go back and read. Read the book of Romans is where I would start. You can check out some of the sermons online, but the main thing is you read and, and you, you spend time reading and studying the Word so that it makes sense. And so we're going to start uh, today in verse 14, and I'm going to go ahead and just read the, the rest of the chapter there. That's what we're going to cover, and then I'm going to kind of break it down from, from that point. So Romans 7 Uh, 14 through 25. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
What I want to do this morning is start with a one-sentence summary of these verses, and then I'm going to, so I'm kind of going to do this backwards. I'm going to give you a summary of these verses, and then I'm going to work backwards from there as we break those down. And we don't have to look very far for a one-sentence summary of, of Romans 7, specifically these verses, and it's, uh, you flip a couple pages over in your Bible, and there's a perfect summary of these verses offered by Paul himself in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. And you don't have to turn there. We're not going to be in Galatians this morning. But this is, this is a good summary of, of Romans 7. It says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you want to know a summary verse of Romans 7, it's Galatians 5.17. This is exactly what Romans 7 is about. It's this constant war that takes place between the desires of our flesh, the sin nature, and the desires of the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Obviously, Paul is speaking, as I've said many times, at this point in the book, he is speaking to believers in Jesus in this text. Because if a person has never placed their faith in Jesus, and they've not given him their heart and their life, there's no war inside that person. The flesh reigns supreme. So if there is no Holy Spirit indwelling a person, then there is no war because the flesh reigns. And they do evil, they do whatever they want, and they feel no remorse. We probably all know people like that. So we're we're talking, Paul is talking to believers where there's the indwelling Holy Spirit, and yet all of us, because we're on this side of heaven, are still in the flesh. We are still have that sinful nature. So I want you to I want you to keep these things in I want you to keep these things in mind as we keep this in context this morning of what who Paul is talking to and and what he's talking about. Uh, you may have glanced at the sermon title this morning and thought, uh, "What does that mean?" And I, I titled this sermon "Constant War in a Battle We Cannot Lose." And a big part of that comes from Dr. Timothy Keller. And if you, if you follow Dr. T, uh, Dr. Keller, he breaks down Romans 7 in that way up there on the screen. I've got there for you. Verses 1 through 6, he says it's kind of a transition. Verses 7 through 13 is a battle we cannot win. And then verses 14 to 25, where we find ourselves today, a battle we cannot lose. And I love that, that, that phrasing there. And so I kind of added in the constant war part because that's exactly what Paul describes in these verses. There's ongoing constant war raging internally in a Christian between the flesh and the Spirit of God. And and that is a war uh, that is in a battle, as Dr. Keller says, that we cannot lose. And we need to keep that in mind as we get into this text. Because as you get in here, you think, you, you almost have the tendency to think that there's no way I'm going to be able to succeed in this. I am going to fail. And I love the way he phrases that, a battle we cannot lose. So starting with verse 14, notice the very first word there is for. And that word is a transition word. So when you see a verse that starts with for, you need to always ask, okay, what's he saying? And again, think back to the Legos. For we built the foundation, because we have the foundation, now I'm going to say this. So please keep that in mind when you see words like that. And then he, he talks about in Romans seven fourteen. he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Two two quick things right off the bat here. Number one, I want you to see this. 
In, in verses 7 to 25, that's a little bit of what we covered last week. Um, so verses 7 to 25, Paul uses the first person singular pronouns 46 different times. I'm talking like I and me and my. So you've got to know right away that Paul is talking about a personal experience. He's not talking about, well, I heard about, you know, this thing, or this is what my understanding is. This is me. I have done this. I desire to do good, but I do what is evil. My desire is this. My, I, me, 46 different times, first person singular pronouns. But then also starting in verse 14, I want you to notice a big difference in this chapter that Paul changes the tense in which he's talking. He changes from past tense to present tense. Go back and look at the verbs that he's using. And all of a sudden in verse 14, there's a lot of present tense, present tense words, meaning that Paul is not referencing his life before he knew Jesus. Paul is not referencing his life when he had first met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he's learning to grow as a new believer. Paul's not talking about those times. Paul is talking about now, the present tense. As a mature believer in Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, this is my struggle now. This is where I'm at now. And I want you to keep that in mind, that the challenges and the struggles he describes are ones that mature believers in Jesus Christ will face. So when you read this, you got to think, man, if the Apostle Paul can say, I do the very thing that I hate, and I don't do the thing that my heart desires, can you relate to that? I believe you can. I know that I can. I think when we, we get in this text, you're going to see that Paul's words become more and more our words in many, many ways. If you go to those next two verses, starting in, well, actually three verses, 15, 16, 17. Look what he says. He says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but that sin that dwells within me. You ever said or done something and then almost immediately hated yourself because of what you just said or done? Like almost in the moment. And, and I know I, I have. I've done that not only this week. I've done that multiple times, sometimes multiple times in an hour, multiple times in a day. And it, it's one of those things that you're, you, you feel the weight of your sin almost instantly. Like as soon as you think the thought, as soon as you say the words, as soon as you do the act, whatever, and you're like, wow. I mean, it doesn't take days for this to come back up. It's like immediate. And it's, I think it's these moments that Paul is describing here when he says, I don't understand my own actions. What, what am I doing? And I, I think we can relate to that phrase that he says in verse 15, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I mean, if you think about that, you probably can relate to that. I know that I can. I can already relate to that this morning and just getting ready and getting my kids ready to come, come here. I mean, it's like some of my reactions are the things that I hate, and yet that's what I did. It's like I, I don't do the things that I want to do. I do the things that I hate. And it's, it's incomprehensible for us, even in ourselves, to, to realize this war that's waging every moment of every second between our actions and our words and our, and our thoughts. 
But the good news is, in verse 17 that I just read, Paul says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, now understand this. This is not Paul failing to take responsibility. He said, you know what? The devil made me do that. That's sin's problem. That wasn't me. That's, that's, that's sin. Sin did that. That's not me. That's, that's, not, that's not what Paul's saying here. I think that's the easy route out. I think a lot of believers, non-believers, I mean, even mass murderers have said, you know, have claimed it was the whatever that made me do it. It was the substance I was on. It was the uh, influence I was under. It was satanic forces. And those things can all play a part, definitely. But that's, that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul, Paul is saying here that he is in, in personal disagreement with his sin. He's saying, when I sin, it's not I who do it. Meaning, in his heart, in his mind, I don't want to do that. And yet, it's the sin that indwells me. It's that sin nature. And then he takes it a step further. Keep going. Look at what he says in verse, verse 18. He says this in verse 18. Let me pull that up. There. there we go. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He said, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in, within me. Again, it's kind of a repeat of the first part of what we just read. So Paul is rightfully recognizing and declaring, first of all, in verse 18, there is nothing good in him, meaning in his sin nature, in his flesh, there is nothing good. He says, I want to do what's right, I, I really do, but the reality is that I, meaning just like us, we don't even have the ability to do good. So it's not a question of, did you do good? The question is, you can't do good. You, you have a sinful nature. And that's what Paul says, there is nothing good that dwells in me, in my, in my flesh. And so what we often do, especially in the church, to counteract our inability to do good, to make any lasting impact spiritually, because guess what? You and me and Paul and everybody else outside of Jesus have no ability to make any lasting impact on anybody's life outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you know what we do? We think, oh, well, I, I think I can. I think I can do some things on my own. And you know what we do? Is the one thing we do, and this is so very true in our, in our Christian lives and in our church, is we get busy. And we get busy doing good works. And oftentimes we get busy doing good works inside the church. And, and somehow we believe that if we stay involved in, in every ministry and we go to every Bible study and we attend every connect group and we make it to every uh, devotional time and, we, and you know, every outreach event, and, every, and if we just stay busy, that, man, God's going to bless that and there's going to be good works that I'm going to be responsible for. And, and, I'm, and you're, you're going to see God bless my ministry. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, let me read you this, this quote I came across this week. Uh, a man I respect greatly. He, he passed away earlier this year. But commentator Warren Wearsby, he, he says this. He said, we become as busy as termites and have the same effect in and on the church. Busyness is not obedience. Busyness is not obedience. Oftentimes, I think we need to stop, press pause, 
and look at our regular routines in our lives and in our churches and ask the Lord to evaluate our hearts, expose our motives, guide us to rely on him in obedience. I love, I love that termites example. I don't, I don't know a lot about termites, but what I do know about termites is they're, they're busy little rascals, right? And, and their busyness, while they maintain so busy, you could ne- I, don't, I don't know if, I guess termites sleep. I don't know how that works, but I've never seen termites when they're like, they're just everywhere, and you just, they're just crazy. And if you think about that, think about all that busyness and all that activity, and what's it bringing? It's bringing in the same effect in and on the church. You think about the negative consequences if, if this building had termites, if your house had termites. And, oh, yeah, there's lots and lots of busyness, lots and lots of activity, and your house is going to crumble, and your church is going to crumble, or your business is going to crumble. But, but you can say, well, I, was, I was so busy. We were, we, were, we were doing all these things, and we had all these ministries, and we had all these Bible studies, and I had my kids doing this, and I had my kids doing that, and I was so busy. Why is my house crumbling? Why is my church crumbling? I go back to that quote there, busyness is not obedience. And I wonder sometimes if God looks down on us, and I have no idea, this is just me speculating, this is not the, 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 the Bible, this is me stepping out. And I wonder if God looks down at us sometimes, and us going about our little busy lives, driving to work, doing our little work, coming back home, going to our little extracurricular activities, doing our little ministries, going to all our little things, and think, if you, if you, if you would just stop. If you would just stop and be still and spend time with me. Stop being so busy. Stop going to all those things. Stop doing all that and just be with me. Now, I'm not saying that all those things are bad. All those things are good. There's a reason we do that. There's a purpose behind all those things. But if all we are is busy, then our church will crumble. Our house will crumble. Our family will crumble. And most importantly, our spiritual life will crumble. I think about my two kids. Jude is is nine and Merrill is seven, and I have to admit, it's a little bit weird for me now. Jude is no longer in Connect Kids, so I can't tell stories about him. He's sitting here now. So, um, so i got to be careful, because now you can go to him and ask if it's a true story or not, and he can expose my lies. And so it's kind of weird for me now that he's out here. So me and him are adjusting to that. But, but when I think about my kids, if it was an average, uh, average day on a weekend or something, and Jamie and I were, had to clean up the house, or we had to do something out in the yard or whatever, I think about my two kids. Oftentimes, when we would be doing that work, they would be busy right alongside of us, usually running around, fighting, yelling, screaming, playing, whatever, tons of things. And they would be, if you looked at the picture, if you just took a video snapshot of, of, of our family, you'd say, man, they're all, they're all really busy at that moment. And that, I mean, from the outside in, that would be true, right? But if you came up to me and Jamie and said, hey, are your, are your two kids being obedient and helping you with the, the housework, they being obedient and helping you with the cleaning up the yard. I mean, me and Jamie are just going to roll our eyes. Are you serious? No, they're making more of a mess most of the time. And so they're, they're busy having fun. They're, they're playing war, whatever. And I'm like, I just picked this room up. Now i got to go back and pick up after you again. And so they're busy, and it looks, it looks good, like we're all one huge functioning, happy family, but in reality, there's some dysfunction there, right? Because there's some sides of the family that are going about the right thing and some sides going about it doing the wrong way. And let me just tell you, that's not just true for my kids. That's true for us as adults. Is activity level does not equal to our obedience level. We've got to remember that the exact same principle applies to us in regards to the good works we find ourselves so busy doing. 
we have to remember, apart from being connected to Jesus, this is what Paul's saying here, we can do nothing good. We can do nothing right. We can do nothing that would bring him glory. We can do nothing of eternal spiritual value. And let me just take a press pause for just a second and say, in case you didn't know this, or maybe you did know this and you forgot, this is the exact reason why this church is called Connect Church. The name comes from Jesus' words in John 15, 5, which I believe so wholeheartedly about. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And here Jesus repeats what Paul just said, for apart from me you can do nothing. We must strive for a close connection to Christ, not busyness in our good works. And what, what, what Jesus says in John 15, if we're closely connected to the vine, then the branches, they're going to bear fruit naturally. You don't have to worry about doing good works. You don't have to worry about making all your ministries perfect and making your families perfect. If you're connected to the vine, what Jesus is saying, then naturally the branches will bear good fruit. I want to keep reading as we close out this chapter. Some really intense verses here. Look at verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul makes it very clear in verse 21 that the presence of evil will always be a universal reality while we're on this earth, even as a mature believer in Christ. So what that means is you're you're a believer in Jesus, whether you just came to Christ today or you've been walking with him for for 30 or 40 or 50 years, whatever it might be, that there is opposition to every good thought, every good word, every good deed. It says evil is always there. And this goes all the way back to Genesis. Y'all remember Genesis, there's a lot going on in Genesis, and we think about a lot, but there's one particular verse, an excerpt of that verse, In Genesis 4-7, this is New American Standard Version. It says, sin is crouching at the door. And and look at that second part of that verse. Its desire is for you. If you ever want to be reminded that you are in warfare every single day, post that verse somewhere on your refrigerator, on your bathroom mirror. Sin is crouching at the door. The, the picture here is of a roaring lion that we see later in the New Testament that is described as, as evil and Satan. And notice, its desire is not to wreak havoc in your life, not to make you have a bad day. Its desire is for you, to have you, to have you under its presence, to make you captive to its presence. And so there's always going to be this constant war between our flesh and our sin nature versus the Holy Spirit living in us. 
until that day when we are taken home to be with the Lord and we are finally perfected in our glorified bodies in his presence. Pastor uh, J.D. Greer up at the Summit Church in, in Raleigh, Durham area, he tells a story about one of his favorite books. And the, and the book's entitled Select Letters of John Newton. And that name John Newton might sound familiar. Uh, it, it probably should. John Newton uh, is most famous for writing the song Amazing Grace. Turns out that was a pretty decent song, I guess. Uh, but, but Newton also pastored a small church in 18th century England. And, and throughout his ministry, he would, which I, th- I find fascinating, he would often write letters uh, of encouragement to other pastors. Um, I, I just find that amazing, that he would take time outside of his ministry to write just small, simple letters of encouragement to, to, other, to other pastors, to other believers, and many of which were believers in his church, but also outside of his church. Um, when he was 83, 83 years old, John Newton wrote a letter to a fellow pastor where he confessed something that he had always assumed that now he was wrong about. He said that he had always assumed after walking with God for now going on 40 or 50 years that he would have made so much more progress in his Christian life. And, And he wondered why, out loud in this letter, at 83 years old, the temptations of the flesh were still as strong in him then as they were when he was a young man. And in that letter, Newton came to this conclusion, and I've, I've, I've got the excerpt here. This is, this is what he said in this letter to this other pastor. He said, I th- we think growing in grace means getting to a place where we don't need grace anymore. But growing in grace often means growing in our awareness of our need for grace. Growth in grace means growing in your awareness of your need of it, not getting to a place where you feel like it's no longer necessary. Those are some profound and powerful words coming from a man like John Newton at the age of 83 years old. Growth in grace means growing in your awareness of your need of grace. It doesn't mean getting to a place where you feel like it's no longer necessary. And I think that's where he had deceived himself. He thought that he would eventually get to a place at, at 60, at 70, at 80, at 90 years old. I've been walking with God for so long that, you know what, I don't, I don't, I don't need so much more grace now because I'm walking with the Lord for so long. And he says, no, that's not, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I, it's not that I don't need grace anymore, it's that I'm, I'm more aware than ever that I need it even more. Growth in grace means growing in your awareness of your need of grace. It's likely Newton's thoughts, along with the truth of Scripture that led J.D. Greer to his own conclusion, which I think is very interesting. He said, the irony, the irony of the Christian life is that the only ones who get better are those who understand that their acceptance by God is not conditioned on their getting better. Think about that for just a second. Because when I read that, I had to read it three times for it to make sense. I'm one of those people, I get stuck in a book, I read the same sentence like 17 times. Well, this was, this was one of those sentences I read like 15 times. But, but what he's saying there is, is, is so true. 
That the only people that get better in the Christian life are those that understand their acceptance by God is not conditioned on you getting better. It's not, well, did you, did you do check your list today? Did you have your good works today? Did you, it, it's not about you getting better. It's about you relying on Him. What he's basically saying in that quote is the same thing that Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7. If you look at verse 23 and 24 specifically, I mean, look how this lines up. This is crazy. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Paul says basically what John Newton concluded, that there is constant war in my body and in my mind, the flesh versus the spirit. And that even means for the mature believer. That even means for the John Newtons of the world at 83 years old. That even means for that 18-year-old that's accepted Christ and is on fire for the Lord. That means everybody in between that there is a constant war. And that's exactly where we find Paul in verse 24, the next verse. And I want to show you this clip here in just a second. I want to show you verse 24, though. That, that he says, wretched man that I am, exclamation point. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, this, this is the breaking point. Verse 24 is the breaking point of this text. I don't want you to, to miss this. This is a cry from a mature believer that is exhausted in the war. The war of the flesh versus the spirit. See, this is, Paul, Paul knew the truth of salvation. He had been saved. He, had, he knew what it meant to receive forgiveness. And he knew what it meant to walk with the Lord. And he knew what it meant to see his miracles. He had long known those things. And yet the war waged on to the point where he cries out in total desperation right here, wretched man that I am. And that language that Paul uses there in who will deliver me from this body of death, that language, you go back and read that, and I was reading some stuff, studying some stuff this week, that language is that of war, is of a, of a, of a soldier being pinned down by, by enemy gunfire, and he knows that there's no help. He's been injured, he cannot move, the enemy's coming, and there's only one of two things that's going to happen to him. He's either going to be captured or he's going to be killed. That's his future. That's all he's got left. He is on his last breath. Capture or death is imminent. And as I was studying that and reflecting on things, I, I thought about a clip from, and you guys may have seen this uh, movie. It came out uh, 2016, I believe. Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know if it's right or wrong. You can convict me later or tell me how wrong I am. Um, but war movies are one of my favorite genres of movies. And they can be very uh, rough and, and very have a lot of bad things in them. But I love, I love war movies, especially ones that are based on true stories. Um, there's probably no genre that I love more than a, uh, a war movie based on something true. And one of the things that came to mind was, was this movie. And I didn't see it when it came out. I saw it um, just in the last year or so. And um, th- this movie is, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but... I don't usually publicly endorse movies or music. I know everybody has different convictions, and that's between you and the Lord, but, but this movie is, is, is good. And I, w- I wanted to read to you just a, a brief description of this movie because it's going to make this, this movie is going to tie into Romans so perfectly. And this description is, uh, I don't know, it's from Mike, uh, Mike Miller, people.com. This is what he said. Hacksaw Ridge is based on the true story 
of Private Desmond Doss from Lynchburg, Virginia. Doss was a devout Seventh-day Adventist, and he was a conscientious objector. But he enlisted in the U.S. Army after the bombing of Pearl Harbor as a medic. He hoped that by joining the Army as a medic, he could avoid carrying a weapon and yet still meet the moral obligation he felt to fight for his country. While Doss viewed himself not as a conscientious objector, but a conscientious cooperator, his fellow infantrymen and his superiors did not see it that way. He arrived at basic training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and he quickly became an outcast from the rest of the recruits. Many soldiers believed that he would be a major liability in battle. I got to admit, I would too. You're not carrying a gun. Doss was subjected to physical and psychological abuse by the other soldiers. And he endured several attempts by his superiors to have him discharged from the military. Undeterred, Private Doss deployed with the 307th Infantry, 77th Infantry Division in the summer of 1944. He served as a medic on Guam and in the Philippines prior to the Battle of Okinawa. During that battle, Doss walked into the bloodiest battle of World War II's Pacific Theater with nothing to protect himself except his Bible and his faith in God. The fighting took place on the hellish Medea Escarpment in April 1945. The battlefield, it was located on top of a sheer 400-foot cliff, was fortified with a deadly network of Japanese machine gun nests and booby traps. The escarpment, nicknamed Hacksaw Ridge for the treacherously steep cliff, was the key to winning the Battle of Okinawa. The mission was thought to be near impossible, and when Doss's battalion was ordered to retreat, the medic refused to leave his fallen comrades behind. So facing heavy machine gun and artillery fire, Doss repeatedly ran alone into the kill zone, carrying wounded soldiers to the edge of the cliff and single-handedly lowering them down to safety. The danger was even greater for Doss as the Japanese military were known to target medics. Each time he saved a man's life, Doss would pray out loud, Lord, please help me get one more. And Doss would sprint back into the kill zone through enemy heavy fire to save his fellow soldiers all through the night. By the end of the night, he had rescued an estimated 75 men. He ended up serving for a couple of more weeks before being wounded by shrapnel from a grenade. Despite his injuries, he continued to treat other soldiers until finally his arm was completely broken at one point by Japanese gunfire. President Harry S. Truman presented Doss with the Medal of Honor on October 12, 1945. He was the first conscientious objector to receive that prestigious honor. He spent the first five years after the war recovering from his injuries. He ultimately lost a lung to tuberculosis, and his injuries prevented him from working full-time, and he devoted the rest of his life to working with his church until his death in 2006. This story is amazing. Uh, the movie is incredible. Um, but what I want, I need, I need you to understand the big picture of what I'm talking about with this movie. Because I want to show you 43 seconds of this movie 
it won't make sense unless I just laid out to you what's going on in that movie. Now, what I'm getting ready to show you, I want you to imagine that you are the injured soldier that you're going to see in this scene. I want you to imagine that that's you and that the enemy behind you is quickly approaching. You can't move. And, and I imagine that this soldier that you're going to see in this scene was many just like him from that night, many of which probably did not make it, but they probably felt just like the Apostle Paul in verse 24 when he cries out, who will deliver me from this body of death? Death was imminent. Who will deliver me from this body of death? It's a bit late for target practice now, don't you think? <laughs> Jump on it. You kidding? Oh, I'm going to drag you. Let's do it! Ready? Yeah! Let's go! We got company! Come on! I want you to imagine that scene playing over and over 75. Some people estimate it even in as many as 100 times that night. He's got a gun laying there, a gun that he could have picked up and used. Instead, he uses the gun and he rolls it up and he makes a, a makeshift stretcher and he carries this man out while being fired upon upon the enemy. He got not only that man in the movie, he gets him not only to the, to the ridge and lowers him, but he gets, um, most estimates say 100 people, but he said he only did 50, so they just settled on 75 as a compromise. But, uh, but, 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 but what you see in that, in that moment is you see and you feel the intensity of that moment. And even, even more so when you're, you see the whole movie, but I want you to see that clip because that's the intensity and that's the desperation of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, verse 24. He is exhausted. He is spiritually and physically exhausted. He's wounded. He cries out as a child of God, who will rescue me from this body of death? But then he writes in the very last verse of that chapter, wonderful words. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul closes chapter 7 by offering thanksgiving to God through Jesus for his rescue, despite the fact that Paul knew the war would continue to wage on while he was still on this earth. And that's why he offers that last statement in verse 25. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I've been, I've been saved. And in this situation, that soldier had been saved. Was that the end of the war? Was that the end of the battle? Nope. The war waged on. People would continue to die. They would continue to be fighting. And that's why Paul says what he does. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, so then, I myself will serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. That's what this chapter is about. He's like, and the war wages on. But it's a war in a battle that we cannot lose. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm going to ask Keith and, and Jamie to come up. They're going to close us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for the power of your word. 
thank you for saving us. And we just see a movie clip, and there's a, there's a man rescuing another man and saving his life. And, and Lord, the, the virtue and the bravery behind that is unspeakable. But what you have done for us, what Paul talks about in verse 24, verse 25, is light years beyond that. That we are desperate and we are crying out, Lord, in our flesh on a daily, moment-to-moment basis, who will rescue me from this body of death? Because, Lord, we know this body is dying. It may not feel like it. It may not look like it. But, Lord, we know this body is not made to last And it is dying. And who will rescue me? And we cry out, Lord, and we cry out for you. And you come in and and we say thank you. Just as the Apostle Paul says, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for rescuing us, for putting us in a position where we have eternity, if we're in you, to look forward to being with you. Lord, here's the reality. As we, we, we lift up your name as we close this service, the reality is this is that when we leave this place today, the war wages on. Doesn't go away. Doesn't go away for me. Doesn't go away for any person in this room. As long as we're in this flesh, there's going to be war. But Lord, let us be reminded, yes, there's war. And it's going to be constant. But it's in a battle that we absolutely, positively cannot lose. And will not lose because you've already won the victory. That's what we've already been singing about this morning, Lord, that we have victory through you. Without that, we're left to die and be taken captive by the enemy, by the evil that is crouching at our door seeking to devour us. Lord, I pray that you would wake us up, realize that we are in warfare, warfare much more significant even in that scene in that movie, because, Lord, we're talking about eternal warfare, spiritual warfare. And if we don't realize we're in the fight, I think sometimes we get more lost than ever. Thank you, Lord, that we're in a battle we cannot lose because you've already won the war. We love you, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.